Thank you for coming. Euclid would be very pleased to see you. Um, I wish it to be a matter of public record that I intend this lecture to celebrate the activities of the 16 students in my freshman math tutorial during the year just passed. It also expresses um, my gratitude to them. Not getting it. Okay, this better? Yes. Thank you. Um, in Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, chapter 31, Huck and his friend Tom Sawyer are visiting Aunt Polly's farm. They're trying to figure out where the runaway slave, Jim, is being held prisoner until his supposed owner arrives to reclaim him. Tom has seen somebody taking food into a hut down by the back fence, and he deduces that's where Jim is. Huck saw this too, but he thought the food was for dogs. Tom points out that part of the food was watermelon. So it was, says Huck. Well, that does beat all. I never thought about a dog not eating watermelon. It shows how a body can see and don't see at the same time. Today, we might say, Huck didn't connect the dots. This figure of speech has to my ears Euclidean overtones. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And if you don't connect the dots, you won't see straight. What is going on in the common experience we all have had of sometimes failing to see the obvious? This is the question driving my lecture. The freshman in my mathematics tutorial last fall and this spring had a very good year. I did too. In May, all of us were able to see mathematical things we didn't see in August. It was I who probably learned the most. And some of the students learned more than others. But everyone learned something. When I look back over the year, I began wondering how our good experience came about and whether if I could discover the causes, I could make it happen again. In my sophomore math tutorial, for example, where I'm stationed the coming year. That I cannot make it happen again soon became pretty clear to me. But I came to believe also that to try to figure out what contributed to our success 
would be worth doing for its own sake. This lecture is my first attempt to give some account of how my tutorial's study of Euclid's elements helped us learn to start paying more attention to the obvious. The reason I can't make this experience happen again is that the teacher is not the cause of learning in the student. Not the sole cause, not the primary cause. We can see this from an image of teaching and learning Plato presents in the Mino. The focal point of the image I mean is the well-known geometry demonstration. Mino has asked Socrates to teach him that learning is nothing but recollection. The geometry demonstration is Socrates' response. He leads Mino's slave boy to see that the square, double in size of a given square, has as its side the diagonal of the given square. That's the first figure on the handout, and they are in the order in which I will be referring to them. The image inverts what blind eyes can see. It turns the ordinary upside down. It shows that the rich, ambitious, and acquisitive Mino lacks something in his soul, which is necessary for being able to learn. While the slave boy appears to be teachable. In his capacity for fruitful open-mindedness, the slave is superior. The master is inferior. What does the slave boy have that Mino lacks? What makes our minds fertile for learning? If you see the image, questions like these become obvious. But when I first read the Mino in 1971, and for a long time repeatedly thereafter, I did not see either the image or the questions. My mind must have been numb. Certainly I was afflicted with ambition. A decade and a half later, in the mid-1980s, I read Euclid for the first time, using Book One as the text for an elective course on logic that I taught in the law school at Loyola University, Chicago. It proved to be an excellent gymnastic for learning the syllogism and its varieties. But it didn't occur to me then to ask whether there was any connection between elements proposition 147, the so-called Pythagorean theorem, and the slave boy's problem, doubling the square in the Mino. 
In fact, as some in my tutorial discovered last year, the proposition and the problem are siblings. The Mino is the first platonic dialogue assigned to our students, both undergraduate and GI. And Euclid is the first mathematics. How do Plato and Euclid stand toward one another as teachers? They look quite different. Plato gives us conversations, which we call dialogues, and very often also stories. <coughs> Euclid gives 450 apparently dogmatic propositions, all in the same form or a variant of it. Given these things, I say this follows, or is true. The connection between geometry and philosophy began to emerge as a question in my tutorials conversation during the spring as we approached the end of our six-month study of the elements. One sign of this was a tutorial paper titled, Is Euclid a Good Teacher? It was written by a student who had asked me to be advisor for his freshman essay on the Mino. It began to seem to some of us that reading Plato requires a certain gymnastic training of the imagination and that studying the elements is this very gymnastic. The constant practice of reading carefully and doing demonstrations helps us form the habits necessary to seeing things that are obvious yet hidden because our unexamined habits are filtering what we pay most attention to. In early May, I asked the students to say in one page whether they had achieved during the year what they aimed at last fall, what they would like to see done differently if we were doing the tutorial again together, and what advice they had for next year's freshman. One of them said this, I would advise next year's freshman to get acquainted with book 13 as early as possible and work backwards. At whatever rate is feasible while working forwards for daily tutorial assignments so that they may sooner understand the whole which Euclid builds. I think this is very good advice. It is good because this student can speak in May with the authority of experience. Here's what he said last August as he was beginning about his education in mathematics before St. John. Analyze, simulate, replicate. These were the steps high school mathematics taught me to take, like commands programmed into a computer. But there was something missing in all these classes. I was never asked to think about or figure out or understand what was going on, why things worked the way they did. I was just trained to see what to do when given a certain problem. 
Connecting the dots last August and this May shows how far this student's study with Euclid took him along the road toward understanding what's going on in mathematics and why the equalities of Euclidean geometry and the equations of algebra work the way they do. The advice to get acquainted early with the whole of the elements and keep looking backwards from the end and forwards from the beginning or wherever you are now. This advice, besides being the voice of experience, is good in itself. To understand a book, we must know it as a whole with all its particulars in order from the beginning through the middle and up to its complete end. A first and only reading is never sufficient. It might let you see the whole surface, but you won't penetrate the depth. How can we begin to see the elements as a whole without having gone all the way through? One way, in itself not very imaginative, although to do it productively calls for considerable imagination, is to look at the first and the last propositions. These are on the handout. Connecting these two points can prompt us to ask, how did Euclid get from here to there? From the equilateral triangle to the five regular solids inscribable in a sphere. Proposition 1-1 gives us a finite straight line and requires that an equilateral triangle be constructed on it. The construction is accomplished by, each, by using each of the line's extremities as the center of a circle, with the line's length as radius. Point C, where the two circles cut one another, becomes the apex of the required triangle. It is equal-sided because its sides are radii of equal circles. From this we see that the circle is the dwelling place of the equal. Proposition 1318 is far more complex. To set out the sides of the five figures and to compare them with one another. The five figures are the four-sided pyramid, the six-sided cube, the eight-sided octahedron, the twelve-sided icosahedron, and the twenty-sided dodecahedron. Behold. In the second part of the proposition, Euclid shows that no other solid figures with faces that are equal in area and equal-sided and equiangular can be constructed and inscribed in a sphere. All that the 1318 drawing shows visibly is a semicircle, its horizontal diameter, and five straight lines perpendicular to the diameter. We learn from reading the proposition that each of the perpendiculars is the side of one of the plane figures that form the faces of the inscribable solid figures. These plane figures are the equilateral triangle, 
from proposition 1-1, the square from proposition which we learn how to construct in proposition 145, and the pentagon, propositions 4-11 through 14. Construction of the pentagon depends, in turn, upon construction of an isosceles triangle, which we first learned about in Proposition 1-4. The isosceles triangle needed to construct the pentagon is unique. Each of the equal angles at its base must be double the angle of the apex, Proposition 4-10. I mentioned these various earlier propositions as a pointer to this comprehensive fact. Everything in 1318 in the drawing, what is visible and what can be seen, though it is not visible, can be traced back to the beginning of the whole book. This path is not a straight line. It is not merely deductive although it relies on, indeed embodies, a very great deal of logic. Path may not be the most fit analogy. The whole elements is more like a tapestry, woven of many threads gathered together in one beautiful design. The 1318 drawing is the icon of this pattern. The invisible design can be seen only by a properly habituated imagination. This habituation arises only from going all the way through the preceding 450 propositions, step by step in the order Euclid presents them. There is no royal road no executive summary, no Euclid for dummies, and nothing on the internet, including the Euclid in color you can find there, will take the place of patiently and attentively working your way through the propositions one by one. Another way to get acquainted with the whole before going all the way through is to fan the 480 pages of the Green Lion edition like this. <laughs> now, if you take about a minute to do that, that's enough time to look at the running headlines at the top of the page so you'll know what book you're looking at and glance at the drawings. What I was most struck by doing this is that in the drawings, geometrical figures appear mainly at the beginning in books one through four and at the end, books 11 through 13. In the books between, five through 10, with one exception, the drawings are nothing but straight lines. Books seven through nine, uh, or in book 10, mostly straight lines with some rectangles and a few 
semicircles. The next step in this uh, pre-reading may take several hours. Turn every page. Read quickly the enunciation of each proposition and glance briefly at the drawing. Note which books begin with definitions and which do not. A five-part structure emerges. Plane geometry books one through four. Ratio and proportion. The general theory, book five, and its application to plane figures, book six. Third, number, books seven through nine. Incommensurability, book 10. And solid geometry, book, books 11 through 13. Why does Euclid separate plane from solid geometry? Why does he arrange the elements so that we approach solid geometry through proportion, number, and incommensurability? Is number some kind of bridge from proportion to incommensurability? Or is the problem of incommensurability seen more clearly when we approach it through proportion and number? The middle of the whole elements appears to have three parts with number, books seven through nine, the central one, the middle of the middle. Is number the root of all mathematics as we are taught today? Euclid seems to give equal attention to proportion. Is this because shapely things are more beautiful than things just lined up like a row of dominoes, each one looking just the same as all the others? By presenting shapes in book one through four and proportion in five and six before he presents number in seven through nine, Euclid prepares his readers to think about shapely numbers. Quote, a square number is equal multiplied by equal, or a number contained by two equal numbers. A cube number, one contained by three equal numbers. Definitions 18 and 19 of book seven. Euclid imagines numbers as containers, like the straight lines which contain rectilinear figures. Do figure-eight numbers, square and cube, for example, contain the same thing straight lines contain? Are there curvilinear numbers? Sometime last fall, I think we were in book three, talking about circles and diameters, a student asked, when are we going to get to pi? <laughs> He meant, of course, that place on our number line, which is named after the letter of the Greek alphabet. Next day, I had one of those I wish I'd said moments. What I wish I had done was bring next day to class from the dining hall a slice of apple pie. 
In mid-August 1995, I and the other then new tutors, Ms. Langston, now GI director, was one of them, spent a week in what we called tutor training camp. Several senior tutors, all now retired or no longer living, guided us through a seminar, a lab class, a math and a language tutorial. At Friday's closing lunch, the dean asked us as a group, what do you think you'll find most difficult? The first to answer was a woman with a PhD in mathematics who stayed here only a few years. She said she didn't expect to find freshman mathematics very hard. The dean, Eva Brand, remarked quietly, I think, or perhaps she said, I hope. You'll find that to be one of the most untrue things you've ever said. This occasion reminded me that I had been asked virtually the same question when the instruction committee as a group interviewed me as a prospective tutor. Having talked about this very thing, what would be hard for me, with my oldest son, who was then a senior, I answered truthfully. I thought it would be mathematics. I believed this because in college I majored in English and I had no mathematics training beyond high school four decades earlier. And I had spent the last 25 of these years practicing and teaching law. Mathematics looked very far to what I was most familiar with. My honest, factual, lawyerly answer must have seemed too guarded or cautious. In any event, it was not good enough for the questioner, Michael Littleton. You can see a photograph of him next to the checkout counter in the music library. He said, that's not what I meant. What do you think you'll find hardest spiritually? I connect these dots of memory from 1995 because I was reminded of them last August when I read this opening sentence in the first paper I assigned in the math tutorial. I found all the definitions, postulates, and common notions put forward by Euclid quite straightforward. My hope for this then too easily satisfied student was realized. And I know this from what he said in his last paper in May under the title, My Year with Euclid and Ptolemy. Quote, there were times I didn't feel capable of following the conversation despite my greatest efforts. But those times became fewer. In fact, I would say I enjoyed all our class discussions. They allowed me to feel comfortable admitting I didn't understand something, and this helped me learn. 
If, like Mino, you think you already know about virtue because you've given many speeches about it, or you think you already know mathematics because you have a PhD in it, or you've done many worksheets and solved many equations in high school, then, like Mino, you may not be able to learn much from geometry because you won't see what Euclid or Socrates is putting right in front of you. To conquer the fear of publicly showing your ignorance, as my student did, is to be already in motion towards learning. Those who are studying Greek along with Euclid have a help which too few of them use in the Greek-English lexicon. From it, they can learn that the Greek word translated elements means something in a row, like one of the chairs in this room. And that definitions translates a word with the primary meaning of boundary. Boundaries are containers, they fix limits. Elements are things arranged, like the letters of the alphabet or the 12 numbers around a sundial on which the shadow falls as the sun moves from rising to setting. Euclid so arranges the definitions in book one that the central one is number 13. A figure is that which is contained by a boundary or boundaries. In the elements, there is one and only one figure contained by a single boundary, the circle. Since the first half of book one deals only with triangles, it's easy to overlook that there is a two-sided figure in the elements, the semicircle. We may then fail to see that the semicircle is the most important figure in the entire book. If you doubt this, I suggest you spend some time, several hours, meditating on the drawing for Proposition 1318. But remember that to see everything that's there, including what's not visible, you must have studied all 450 preceding propositions. The definitions that precede number 13 at the beginning of book one specify the elements and parts of figures, point, line, surface, angle, boundary. Those that follow specify kinds of figures, circle, triangle, square, rectangle, and their distinguishing characteristics. How many boundary lines, the number of sides and angles, and how many of each are equal. It pays to read the definitions very carefully. Definition five, surface, precedes seven, plane surface, implying that some surfaces are not plane. For example, the surface of a sphere, which we learn in definition 14 of book 11, is the figure comprehended by rotating a semicircle on its diameter. This definition shows that Euclid wants his readers to regard the semicircle as the generatrix of the sphere, 
the simplest and most perfect shape among the solids. Definition eight, plane angle, precedes nine, rectilineal angle, implying that some plane angles are not rectilineal. Can you think of an example? In my tutorial, we learned later in Proposition 134, that's on the handout, that Euclid calls what a figure contains area. When Proposition 147 was demonstrated, we learned that what area is was very clear to us until we tried to explain it. As we progressed through books one, two, three, and four, it gradually became evident that the main subject of Euclid's plane geometry is the size relations of flat figures having different shapes, three in particular, the triangle, the square, and the circle. The paradigm illustration of how the sizes of triangles and squares are related is Proposition 147, the end of book one, of how the sizes of rectilineal figures and circles are related Proposition 416, the end of the plane geometry. Sometime before the October long weekend, we noticed and began to talk more about the undefined terms in the book one definitions. Part, length, breadth, inclination and direction, continuous, lie evenly, cut, meet, stand, stand on, fall on, stand up on. Euclid, we saw, does not assume that the minds of his readers are blank slates. He seems to suppose, rather, that even before we start to read the elements, we already know something about shapes and sizes, just by having lived in and moved around the physical world. I can bend or straighten my fingers, arms, and legs. So I know in my body what straightness is. I have upright posture, so I can feel what a perpendicular and a right angle are. The top of my head, my eyes, and my cheeks embody curves, as do the arches of my feet. My eyes and ears, hands, arms, and legs are paired and symmetrically arranged so that I know the meaning of one and two, half and double, symmetrical and mirror image. Walking about the world, I see that trees, if unobstructed, grow straight up, that rocks, if unobstructed, fall straight down, and that waves approaching shore, if they are not obstructed by rocks or a sandbar, swell, rise, curl over forward, and then fall. Looking around, I see that the circle of the horizon meets the dome of the sky, forming a visible hemisphere. Looking up, I see that the sun's apparent path of motion during the daytime curves upward from the east, downward toward the west, passing through the top of its semicircular arc at midday. To play frisbee, I don't need to know Euclid's definition of a circle, or his definition of a sphere to enjoy watching basketball. 
There are no practical or mechanical problems in the elements. The book one definitions are evidently not intended primarily for making or doing. What they provide is the particulars of form, shapes and sizes of the elements, causes and relations of shapes and sizes, each one in itself and all of them together in their possible combinations. These are the objects of primary, or we might say, of elementary understanding. In an old fairy tale, which I suspect that children nowadays don't learn or hear, little Goldilocks is wandering in a dark wood and comes on the tidy cottage of Papa Bear Mama Bear and Baby Bear. She goes in and tastes in turn from each of the three bowls of porridge on the kitchen table. Then feeling rather sleepy, she lies down in turn on each of their three beds. One porridge is too hot, another too cold. One bed is too hard, another too soft. But the third porridge is just right. And so is the third bit. She falls asleep. In ancient Greek, there's a word for this, kairos. It means due measure, proportion, fitness. With respect to time, it means the critical opportunity as when Caesar crosses the Rubicon. School teachers, at least some of those that I know, also have a way of saying this. Teachable moment. The time that is ripe for a student to learn something worth learning, if the moment is seized, the knowledge is taken in and absorbed and becomes the student's own in a way that sticks. Fortune, or providence, gave my mathematics tutorial such a moment on the very first day. Following custom, we read the definitions, postulates, and common notions. These first day conversations often start with definition one. A point is that which has no part. We went in a different direction. I asked if there were any questions. Promptly, a brisk voice from my left. What's a non-rectilineal angle? There was a long silence. And then the conversation began. Definition nine says an angle contained by straight lines that meet one another and do not lie in a straight line with one another is rectilineal. So the answer might seem obvious. A non-rectilineal angle is one contained by lines that are not straight, such as the circumference of a circle defined in definition 15. Is the angle between a circumference and a straight line tangent to the circle? 
non-rectilineal. What a non-rectilineal answer, uh, what a non-rectilineal angle was, was not obvious to my students. So they had something to talk about. We explored, considered possibilities, went down blind alleys, looked at other definitions. We didn't reach any firm opinion. It may not have been until book three, proposition 16, that's on the handout, that an answer began coming into view. Yet the question became a leitmotif of our conversation throughout the fall. Kant's critique of pure reason helped me see why. The cause, in a word, was spontaneity. Years ago, I heard a colleague, John White, remark, the question, how do you get virtue, is a serious question, but not in Mino's mouth. I think the question my student asked was serious in his mouth. I believe this because we all heard these overtones in his way of asking it. I do not understand, and I want to. His question was spontaneous and genuine. It gave us an opportunity for learning. And his classmates, bless their hearts, <laughs> took it up and ran with it. <laughs> we got off to a very good start. A few weeks later, uh, I don't remember what we were talking about. I asked a student, well, what do you think? She said, I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. I was looking at that spider web outside the window. We were in room 12 over here. I walked over to look at the spider web. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> one of the biggest I'd ever seen. All the way across one of those windows in this building. Just elegant the gossamer threads, the simplicity of its, of its form. We began talking about weaving. Somebody mentioned Penelope weaving the tapestry or the, the shroud for her father-in-law in Homer's Odyssey. And uh, weaving became another leitmotif in our conversation. Another instance of student spontaneity, another learning moment, another chance to connect the dots, like the vertices in a spider web and the vertices of a pentagon. 
In early October, we were finishing book one, Proposition 147, the Pythagorean Theorem, had been demonstrated, and we were talking about the difference between length and area. We had seen in Proposition 122 on the handout that to form a triangle, three lines must be of such lengths that any two of them are greater than the third. Now we were seeing that in a right triangle, two areas namely the squares on the sides containing the right angle, are equal to, not greater than, the one square on the side that subtends the right angle. Areas and length seem to be different in some way we couldn't quite grasp. A student doubtful that there was any difference very well trained in uh, advanced mathematics, went to the blackboard to explain what she thought. As she drew, she saw the truth. Her eyes widened. She turned visibly pale and was suddenly speechless. She had been very sure she understood a squared plus b squared equals c squared. Another kairos. Instructive conversations reliably arise from occasions like the three I've just described all too briefly. I know this from seeing them happen in my tutorial throughout last year. That studying with Euclid can engender such conversations in our freshmen seems to me mysterious and wonderful, considering what is being done in conventional mathematics education. Here are some comments from the mathematics autobiographies of my students. I asked them to write last August. My high school mathematics classes taught me number, how numbers and shapes worked, but not why they worked the way they did. My school did not teach mathematics in a way I found appealing or that let me look at mathematics as anything other than numbers piled on numbers. I studied mostly in order to pass. It was a way of proving how smart I was. Doing mathematics homework in high school gave me the feeling of wheels turning and a spinning head. My elementary school was a factory perfect assembly line for kids who would come to realize that gifted and talented meant being proficient at doing what you were told. But I enjoyed high school math because all it required was problem-solving skills and I could find solutions even if I'd slept through the last month of classes. These reports, I'm pretty certain, are typical, not isolated. 
the deep root of the problem is in some large part the ruptured continuum, Jacob Klein's phrase, between ancient and modern mathematics, between Euclid and Apollonius on one hand, and on the other, Descartes' algebra and the calculus of Newton and Leibniz. In today's conventional secondary school mathematics training, if what my students say is any evidence, there is more rupture than continuity with the long past of mathematics all the way back to the Pythagoreans. In Euclid's geometry, there is no physics or mechanics. In Aristotle's physics, there is no geometry or mathematics except by way of example, such as the logos of the octave is the two to one ratio. Since the 17th century, our mathematics and physics have merged so that our mathematical education has become oriented toward practical applications and our physics ineradicably infused with equations. The extraordinary power of this merger we can see all around us in the wonderful comforts and conveniences that we take for granted. Personally, I am deeply grateful for the medical technology that modern mathematics and science have made available. Although males in my family typically die before age 70 from a simple heart attack or stroke, here am I entering the ninth decade alive and healthy because an operating room team of 15 or 20 highly trained professionals knew how to stop my heartbeat and breathing for an hour and a half so they could open my chest up like two barn doors and fixed a block artery in the heart. But there is no free lunch. We are paying a price, some of us believe it very heavy, for the technology-powered comfort that far too many in the world cannot enjoy. This price includes what is happening in the minds and souls of young people. Accustomed to looking at most things on a screen, they are becoming blind to the real physical world all around them. Last year, uh, a freshman, not in my mathematics tutorial, sent his math tutor the link to a website where you can see 365 risings and settings of the sun in five seconds. Watching this could save freshmen a lot of time that might otherwise be used, he might say wasted, actually looking at the real sun and going out to the Ptolemy stone day after day to read where the sun's arc is. Although many, if not most, of our freshmen do not recall their prior mathematics training with any much pleasure, still the habits of mathematical thinking they were beaten into have stuck. But as they slowly slough off the inclination to read 
with a view to reframing some word problem into an equation they can solve according to a rule. As they begin to see that to understand Euclid's simplicity, they must pay attention to what he assumes or doesn't say, or doesn't say openly but only hints at or points to, a different art of reading, a new way of seeing becomes possible for them. Here's what happened over the course of the year in the soul of one of my students. August. My third grade teacher pulled me aside and told me I was holding up the class because I couldn't do basic fractions. The idea that I was not destined to be good at mathematics persists in my head to this day. May. I accomplished more than I ever hoped. I now can talk her italics to other people about Ptolemy and Euclid. The tutorial has forced me to be very careful with how I speak and this carefulness has benefited me in other classes as well as in daily life. Six or eight years ago, in our final paper conference, a freshman in that year's math tutorial said to me, Mr. Braithwaite, I think what makes a tutorial work is friendship. Her words uh, stuck with me. In the year just past, I felt I was really seeing as if for the first time how this works. One of my students nailed it down in her thought experiment, repeating the tutorial with the same people. Quote, I think I would trust my classmates more a little earlier. Her advice to next year's freshmen, trust yourself and each other. No one knows everything, everyone can add something. Our class was built on trust. Trust that people would do their work, would help you if you needed it, and that even if your idea turned out to be wrong, no one would hold it against you. If you can't trust the people in your class, you won't be able to look at the book for what it is. It was the students themselves in my tutorial who learned to trust one another so that they could then turn to the tutorial's main business, studying Euclid together. The student who said, without putting up her guard, I wasn't paying attention, I was looking at the spider web, trusted her classmates. My students taught themselves through the lived experience of it, that learning does not happen without trust and spontaneity. These are a sibling pair. Without trust, there will be little spontaneity. But only when students, by habit, speak spontaneously, can trust be tested 
and found durable. The tutor cannot make students speak spontaneously. Neither can he make them be friends. The teacher is not the cause of learning in the student, not the sole cause, not the primary cause. Then what is? I hope we can figure that out in the question period. Thank you.